The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. In this Paltrow case, it was it was fun to learn about the skiing stuff. I never thought I would be talking to some ski expert talking about how ski bindings, you know, break off of, of, of a ski with a certain amount of force and then have to figure out how do you how do you present that to a lay person and you're the one in charge of you know figuring out how to make it lucid and concise and clear to a non-expert hello and welcome to the hearing a legal podcast where we have insightful discussions with interesting people connected to the law i'm your host jennifer thibodeau and today i sit down with james egan Now, James's name might not be immediately familiar to you, but I'm pretty sure you've read about him, heard about him, or maybe even seen him in action trying a case. That's because James was one of the attorneys representing Gwyneth Paltrow in her ski accident trial that was live streamed around the world earlier this year. Now, James might have represented a celebrity, but he ended up becoming a bit of one himself when comments about his appearance went viral. And I'm talking about that whole Clark Kent Superman likeness thing. He ended up getting profiled in publications like People Magazine, Vanity Fair, and the New York Post, to name a few. I wanted to talk to James to go behind the mask, if you will. And I realize that's probably a terrible pun because I'm not sure if Superman actually wore a mask, but I wanted to hear what it was like to try this case, to learn more about his trial experience and his practice in general. So today we talked about his career trajectory from being a fellow at an innocence project to working abroad in India, to selectively choosing to practice at a small firm where he enjoys being a medical malpractice attorney and working with expert witnesses. What I enjoyed most about this conversation though was James's honesty and mindset. He shares how he wasn't sure if he wanted to litigate and that he second guesses himself as a trial lawyer at times. And James is also this accomplished musician who's released two albums and he talks openly about how and why pursuing his music and intentionally making time for it in turn makes him a better lawyer. He's also really vocal about being a dad to a young son and explains that it's really important to him to be present and how he does it while balancing his practice. And now my conversation with James Egan. The Hearing. Hi, James, and welcome to The Hearing. Hey, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for speaking with us. I am super excited for this conversation because we have so many varied topics to talk about today. Yeah, I I hope that it's useful to the listeners, whatever I have to say. I know that it will be. So let's start by getting to know you a little bit. Can you tell us who you are, where you practice, and what you do? Sure. Name's James Egan. I'm born and raised mostly in uh, Salt Lake City. Um, I lived in London for a stint when I was a teenager, and before that, California for a bit. Um, but mostly, you know, Salt Lake City is home. I went to high school here, I went to college here at the University of Utah, and then I went to law school at Brigham Young University, which is um, in Provo, 
just uh, like an hour's drive south of Salt Lake City, where you, the University of Utah is. So, you know, college uh, in the city and then um, just law school just a little bit uh, south of it. Um, and uh, I now practice here in Salt Lake at a firm called Epperson and Owens, which is a, a small, um, until just recently, six-person uh, law firm. We just lost uh, an associate. So any of you listeners, if you <laughs> were, were, <laughs> nice. were looking for an associate. Um, uh, law firm that specializes in medical malpractice defense. We spend almost all of our time defending um, healthcare providers in malpractice suits or in their licensing issues that they may have or uh, various other legal issues that they deal with as healthcare providers. I definitely want to come back and hear more about your day-to-day, but I want to jump right in and talk about the trial. And I'm kind of using a capital T and then another capital T when I reference the trial. For our listeners, James was one of Gwyneth Paltrow's attorneys in the infamous televised trial around the world involving a ski accident earlier this year. I know that many people followed this case, might have watched it as it was televised, but James, particularly since we do have an international audience, can you refresh our recollection and tell us about the allegations in the trial and what the jury decided? Sure. So, I mean, as I was just saying, we don't typically do this sort of work. So it was an unusual case. We occasionally will take a case that's uh, outside of uh, our bread and butter just kind of for the variety and it's if it seems interesting to us so we got a call from um one of the insurers that we work work for mentioned that they have this ski case and um we were like thinking we've never done a ski case sounds kind of interesting and um so we anyway we got that um uh call started the case it was obviously unlike our typical cases um uh, in that we're dealing with a celebrity client and um, it's we're, we're needing different experts than we usually need because we're dealing with ski issues. Um, so it's fun to, uh, you know, do something a little different. Um, the biggest difference, though, was um, trial itself just because it was televised uh, or I, I guess the better term is streamed mm-hmm. online. And um, that was not something we were really expecting i think i don't think we really anticipated it we knew there'd be interest but um uh then and also you know we um weren't necessarily looking forward to it (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know there's a certain added um uncertainty there just because if it's something you haven't done before and we certainly hadn't so yeah that was it was a definitely a very interesting uh unanticipated career experience so what was the case actually about? I know you were defending Ms. Paltrow, but she also brought claims of her own and were successful. Yeah, so it was basically just a, a ski accident and the plaintiff, Terry Sanderson, claimed that Ms. Paltrow hit him on the slopes and caused a, um, a, a severe uh, concussion, some broken ribs, and uh, had some permanent neurological issues as a result of uh, that that concussion. And um, Ms. Paltrow, only because she had been uh, sued about this and um, denied 
the plaintiff's claims, she decided to uh, assert her own cross claim and basically say, no, you know, you, it's actually you that caused the accident. She asked for uh, a dollar in economic damages. The point for her was not to Mm -hmm. to get a bunch of uh, money and in response she only had minor injuries um, she did have a she was shaken up a little bit and she couldn't ski the rest of the day um, but she acknowledged those were very small damages and they weren't the point for her she just wanted to uh, you know push back and assert no you you caused the accident and the jury recognized um, uh, that she was right and so yeah we were able to successfully defend against the claim and we also won won her cross claim. So what, the jury could have just said, uh, well, we don't know who caused it, but they actually said, no, it was the plaintiff uh, that caused it. And and so we won, and that was that was the, the most important thing, obviously, uh, after all of that work. Um, and yeah, it was a years and years of uh, waiting for that, that uh, verdict. Yeah, well, congratulations to you and your team. Obviously, the verdict that you wanted and that your client wanted. I want to ask you about your role in the trial. So you were second chair to your senior partner, Stephen Owens. And look, in my career, I didn't try cases. I was partner at a firm. Um, my cases didn't go to trial. We settled or we won on summary judgment. So I'm curious, given your comments, you know, that this isn't a type of case that you would usually handle at the firm, what your trial experience was like before this and was this totally new for you, particularly since, by the way, it's not like you've been practicing law for, for 30 years. You you are in your late 30s. Yeah. So um, I, before this, I had done, I think, four trials um, as a second chair, never as a first chair. Um, definitely a lot of new things, even in this trial for me. I had never done closing argument before. And mm. so... Um, that was fun to, to get my fir my first try uh, uh, in in such a you know publicized trial. Um, I uh, we actually didn't go into the trial um, with that plan. Um, it was something that kind of developed as we um, tried the the case. Um, we decided that I would do half of the closing because I had done uh, a bunch of I'd basically done all of the expert work on this case. And so a lot of that was dealing with issues of causation and damages. And so I um, addressed those issues at, um, at closing. Um, so that was new. And then I, I had done some witnesses at trial before. And in other words, I had you know, cross-examined witnesses or put our cases witnesses on the stand. Um, but uh, only a few, I think, I don't know what the number would be, but you know, I'd, I'd done maybe five in the prior trials. Um, and, um, so I did maybe half the, the witnesses in this trial. So that was also quite new. Um, luckily I had some experience doing it before, but I still definitely feel like, uh, someone that's new to all of this. Um, and I figured given that an experience that I would be quite, um, you know, uh, overly anxious during the trial. And I was very worried about how uh, I would perform. But um, fortunately, we'd prepared a bunch. <laughs> um, and I was actually surprised uh, at the degree to which I just kind of forgot about the cameras. Um, because once you get in there, you just kind of have a, um, a job to do. And you've prepared really hard to do it. And so you just 
you kind of just get into um, into this zone of getting the work done, and um, the only times that really you're you're thinking a lot about the the cameras and the public aspect of it, I think, are when um, maybe the question of exactly how the camera should, you know, they do, there's called a decorum order, uh, um, which is the court's way of kind of managing how the, the case gets covered by the media. When that stuff comes up, obviously you're thinking about it, but then also if you're maybe not doing as well, then maybe you start to get a little more self-conscious and think like, ah, instead of thinking, how do I do this? You're thinking, oh, how am I looking? <laughs> you know, sure. and, and obviously you want to keep the focus on like, just how does, how should we get this done? And fortunately we were able to uh, focus mostly on that and e more easily than I expected. Um, things went well too. I mean, obviously if they had went um, worse for us, then maybe I would have been in my head more, but I was, I was pleasantly surprised by the, the degree to which the public aspect just kind of melted away once we were in, uh, in the throes of things. Well, you mentioned that you felt anxious and worried about your performance and it was interesting to hear because you certainly appeared very confident and maybe that came from your preparation or over preparation for the trial. And that stands out to me because I remember reading an interview with you, maybe it was for Yahoo, where you made a comment that you don't necessarily love standing up in court and having to be quick witted. You see yourself more as as a writer. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that and kind of how do you reconcile that feeling with the fact that you really do have to stand up in court and be quick witted? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely been, uh, you know, a fear of mine from the start of, of being a litigator. Just before I took the job at Epperson and Owens, the firm I work now, um, where I've been for eight years or so, I uh, had my first job out of law school, which was with the Rocky Mountain Innocence Center, which is mm -hmm. this uh, local, this kind of regional um, innocence project that does work here in Utah, Wyoming, and then Nevada. Um, and, you know, they investigate potentially wrongful convictions. And um, that didn't involve any um, litigation at all. I just investigated cases, basically, and wrote some appellate briefs. And uh, that I really loved. And um, I, uh, when I transitioned into litigation, I definitely had a kind of, um, uh, you know, persistent fear or anxiety about uh, doing depositions, going to hearings, doing trials, trial more than anything. Um, because, and I also hadn't gone to law school thinking I'd be a litigator, so I didn't do a bunch of classes where I'm practicing, you know, how to to take a deposition, uh, you know, or um, I didn't pay as much attention to civil procedure <laughs> as maybe I could have, you know. Um, and so um, I think, you know, it was, all, it was partly the newness factor. And as I did it more than I, I became um, obviously more um, comfortable with it. But then even after experiencing trial a handful of times, there's still a, a degree of discomfort just because it isn't natural um, part of my disposition to, to feel um, comfortable um, sort of getting up and um, being really assertive. Um, I, I can do that. And, you know, maybe you saw some of that in the trial if I'm really, really prepared. But my my disposition is to always think that I'm missing something and how can I rephrase that? Very much a writerly personality where you, you want to write it, see what it looks like, re revise, and you could probably revise forever. Um, 
and in trial you don't have that benefit obviously you just you whatever comes out of your mouth is, is <laughs> what you're going with and so um i think uh and my family always makes fun of me because i'm you know long-winded i take a long time to tell stories i always want to get into like the nitty-gritty details of whether it's some, you know, what I think is some important intellectual point or if some dumb story, I'm just always getting into details and, you know, going back and re rephrasing so I get it just right. And they were all um, joked with me that at the trial, they learned that I actually can be concise if I have to be. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's a lot of effort and uh, preparation um, and luck. I mean, I fortunately, I, I uh, did all right in the trial, but there are times when I don't um, I'm maybe not as prepared or I'm kind of on an off day and I get, I get really frustrated with myself because, and I feel kind of like, oh, why am I doing this? Somebody else should be doing this, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I have to just kind of remember that, you know, there are those, even in the things that I'm, I feel like I'm better at, like there are still off days and I don't do as well and you, you learn from them and, and, uh, try to, um, remember the times when you actually were able to do it and, and just, you know, uh, push in, uh, push forward with that in mind, you know. I would say there are many lawyers listening, including this one, who can uh, definitely relate to the perfectionist tendencies. I feel like that's very common amongst lawyers. And I think the fact that you're a storyteller is, is pretty awesome. I think that will certainly help when it comes to trying cases. So I have to ask, and I hope you don't mind, about the trial. You mentioned that, you know, you overprepared, you forget that the cameras were there unless it comes to the decorum order. But the cameras certainly didn't forget about you. <laughs> During the trial, you garnered quite a bit of attention when someone in the social media world commented on your appearance and all of a sudden you became likened to Clark Kent. You know, you have the black framed glasses, a bit of the square jaw, a little bit of the curl on the forehead, a handsome appearance, and everything seemed to blow up for you from there. Were you ever anticipating that you would garner the attention that you did in this trial? No, definitely not. Um, I thought the only thing I really thought in that direction was I have braces right now because mm -hmm. I was a fool and didn't get them when my dentist said I needed to have this bite issue that uh, we haven't been able to deal with for a few years. He said, well, the only way to deal with it is braces. That was right before the pandemic started. And so I mm -hmm. could have gotten them, got gotten it over with while I was wearing masks. Um, and instead, <laughs> instead, I decided to do it just, you know, a uh, number of months before I had this, you know, uh, globally publicized trial, which was n not the best timing. And so I thought, uh, if I thought about how I would present, it was more like, oh, that it'll, what a, what a, you know, <laughs> unfortunate timing. Uh, I might be called brace face on, on, uh, some oh, comment no. threads or whatever. I mean, obviously it wasn't that big a deal, but, um, uh, I, yeah, that was really all I, I thought of it. I, I wasn't anticipating such publicity for the trial anyway. So uh, I, I wasn't thinking I would be a part of some, you know, um, big media um, uh, attention. Some of it is obviously sort of uh, overly flattering and um, silly about, about the looks and stuff. Um, uh, you know, um, 
I laughed a lot about that with friends and my my <laughs> wife. I, I never thought I would be, you know, talked about as like a sex symbol in the New York Post. Um, mm-hmm. that, that Quite was salacious all, indeed. That, <laughs> that was all, all of very, the coverage, That was yes. all, all very funny. Um, but um, I think uh, the, there were some kind of nice silver linings uh, or just kind of fortuitous um, mm. aspects to that that were maybe more substantive than just kind of funny and silly. And the the main one was just that I um, I'm a musician on the side and um, people found music that uh, I've written and recorded. And I was very pleasantly surprised about that, that people, you know, um, were listening. I went from like having 11 monthly listeners uh, on Spotify, probably like my mom and a few cousins <laughs> and some random, you know, people that have heard me over the years. Um, I used to perform uh, a little bit locally before um, I got busier and I went from like 11 to, you know, like 8,000 or something. It's come much, wow. you know, there was a spike. <laughs> it came, from, it. I think it's a few hundred now, but um, but I spent a lot of time uh, on on my music and, and those recordings and I'm glad that something is coming of that. Um, and I actually chose the job I'm in, in part, because uh, it was uh, at the time where I had a bunch of songs I wanted to record, and um, it was uh, a way for me to make some money to be able to record them the way I wanted to. Um, and um, so, you know, it wasn't the main reason I chose the job, but that was a factor in, in choosing the job. So it was sort of connected. The recordings were somewhat connected to my, my law life. Um, but yeah, that was definitely the most um, surprising and, and I think meaningful uh, aspect of this publicity that I was definitely not expecting. The Hearing. You're an attorney with a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game with superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. Well, you're definitely humble, I will say, when it comes to your musician. You said you do this music on the side, but let's be clear. You've got like two albums on Spotify. I listened to part of one on um iTunes as well. And James, I have to say, I was expecting what I've seen you put out there on social media, which is like you uh, playing the piano and singing. Sometimes you have these beautiful duets with your wife, who's also a musician, but you have like this full orchestra behind you on these albums and you're, you're really good. So I would love to hear about how you I think you use the phrase on the side, how you pursue your music on the side and still maintain the practice that you have. Yeah, well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Thanks for listening. And of course. Uh, I'm glad you like the orchestra. I'm uh I mean, I definitely that that album that you're talking about is the most recent one with the yes. or, the orchestration. That one uh, I did the first year or two um when I started my my job at Epperson and Owens and I was really lucky to have, I, have, I am very lucky to um, have a really good friend who's a film score composer. 
And he was just, we had always talked wow. about doing something together. He's way, way better musician than I am. And I would never be able to really afford his work. But because we're friends, he was willing to, to and he wanted to, you know, collaborate. So we we um, were able to, to put this um, um, 29 piece or whatever it was, orchestra together. Um, and uh, that was extremely fulfilling to do with my friend. Um, you know, I, ha I, I was the, the, the schmuck that was like, here's how I want it. And then, you know, <laughs> he makes it perfect. <laughs> he redid it. Um, so um, anyway, that, that was something I think, you know, I wasn't married yet. I didn't have a, a, a son like I do now. Um, I was earlier in my litigation career. So, I mean, I, like I said, I, there was a big learning curve. So in some ways it was stressful to make time to, to do that um, recording work um and and get it right but um luckily I, I, I didn't have the same um demands on my time as as i do now it'd be much harder to do what i did um than now i also had written all those songs that had been written over the past like 10 years mm -hmm. or so and so um and and writing is the thing that takes the the most time for me so I was, you know, don't, <laughs> I don't want to be misleading. It's, you know, if, if someone were to listen, they don't like, you know, this, this could be done in like a month, you know, uh, while you, <laughs> while you're a partner at a law firm. Right. But it is really important. I found for me to spend time doing that or other things that I enjoy. I think I, if I make the time to do that, I am better at my job. Um, and the better I get at my job, the more, uh, a time I have for those other things because I, I think I, I don't have the same kind of anxiety about how long is this thing going to take or I'm, I'm kind of behind or I just, I just fret, you know, unnecessarily and it takes longer to organize myself and whatever else. I mean, I just feel like the, the more competent I am at my job, the easier it is to organize myself and then make time for other things that I care about. And then it, the more that I actually make the, that time, I think the, the better I am when I come to develop my competence. So it's kind of mutually reinforcing. It's obviously way easier to, um, to say than to do. And it's taken a lot of time to, to um, learn some of that balance. And I still, you know, uh, have plenty of times when I feel like I'm not balancing those things well, but I, I am very convinced of the importance. So I am sort of, I try to dedicate myself to that. Even when it feels like it's going to kind of pinch either way, I get, mm -hmm. a, I have a better sense of when to kind of, um, uh, just decide I need this afternoon or I, I need to focus on this for work for a little bit. You just get a better sense of discretion about when to push into to something or other, um, and, and make time for the other thing, um, that way. So hopefully that makes sense. But I, I think that's, that's a, always a, a huge question for a, any professional who's, you know, got a family life that also has, has hobbies. I have to say it, it completely makes sense. And I think it's an important conversation to have because it is so tempting for lawyers to just throw themselves, particularly trial lawyers and litigators into their work, lose their identity, have their hobbies fall away. I was definitely guilty of that for a period in my life. So to hear you talk about, I guess, the not only the wellness benefits, but also the professional benefits. You said something like, you know, it makes you a, a better lawyer. I think that's that's really, um, really important to discuss. And I think it's amazing that you're, you're doing this and, and putting yourself out there. There was something you said earlier, probably along these lines that I, I wanted to come back to. And you mentioned music as part of your decision to join the smaller firm. 
I'm curious to hear a little bit more uh, about that, about your decision to join the small firm and, and, and why. Is it, is it balance? You've used that word a couple of times. Yeah, no, that, um, let's see. So like I said, I did the, that innocence project, the mm-hmm. Rocky Mountain Innocence Center work as a, it was a fellowship that, um, BYU Brigham Young University, my mm-hmm. law school paid me a stipend to do. I just had gotten really interested in that. And, um, uh, they had just started this fellowship. And so I, I did that mainly just cause that was the time to, uh, um, sort of jump on an opportunity like that. And um, uh, I wasn't sure if I would continue doing that sort of work, but I, I figured here's here's a time to, to get a taste of it and to really work on some of these meaningful cases. Um, and so I, di- I did that and liked it enough that I actually thought, okay, well, I'll continue doing this if I can. And I applied to a bunch of jobs at various innocence projects around the country. And I would get interviews, but I never... Um, got a job and it's you know, fairly competitive because there aren't that many jobs. Most of the work is done either by pro bono law firms or the, the um, law students that work in clinics uh, supervised by maybe a staff attorney or a professor. And so there's these, these jobs for a, a licensed attorney are few and far between. And I didn't have a lot of experience except for just doing the fellowship. And so as it was starting to dawned on me that maybe that wasn't a possibility, at least at the time. I um, I decided, okay, well, maybe I'll do a clerkship or maybe I'll go back to this firm. I had clerked at Epperson and Owens um, and uh, Steve Owens, my, uh, the president and my, my partner that I did the Paltrow trial with, he had called me and said, we're looking for an associate. And so anyways, I, I was weighing either like a, a clerkship um, uh, or... Um, this this job with Epperson and Owens. I, there were a couple other things too, like I was kind of working on a potential job with um, a, an LPO. I don't know if uh, you've heard of those before, legal process outsourcing company. I spent some time in India as a volunteer for my my church, and um, I'd lived there a couple times actually, separate from church service um, for summers. Um, and one of those was during law school. I had um, worked um, with this LPO. Um, in India, kind of training and Indian attorneys to deal with like document review and legal research stuff. So there was that. And then there was even this question of a PhD. But anyway, my point is, I, I, there were like, a lot, there were various things that I was considering. And at least at the time, um, I knew that I didn't want to, if I did litigation, I didn't want to do a big law thing, because I'd done a little bit of that in law school and uh, talked to some friends. And I just felt like that that life was going to be too time intensive for me to be able to do these other things that I cared about. Um, and so I chose to go with the small firm because I, I basically wanted a, a place where I felt like there would be a commitment to uh, allowing me the time for things that I cared about. It, it obviously was still going to be plenty time intensive. It wasn't like they, it was a part-time job or anything, um, right. but there was this, there was this commitment at the firm that I, I had experienced a little bit as a law clerk that I, I could tell that I would, if I made time and I'd put in the work, I'd be able to carve out uh, a little more of the life that I wanted. It's ended up being a good choice for other reasons too. Like I've just had a, I've gotten a lot more experience earlier on mm-hmm. than a lot of people that I know um, that went to bigger firms. So in terms of the, like, for example, the expert work that I like doing the most um, which is definitely the the, the kind of um, 
the best part of my job for me, I, uh, I've been able to do a ton of that and pretty quickly. And, um, uh, so I, I think it was, um, some, that was something I didn't anticipate, but it, that has been really good about, about the small firm choice. And so, yeah, I mean, for those out there that are really concerned about, um, finding a, a job that allows them the, the time for family life, some friends, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the hobbies that they, that they care about, that might be something to consider. And it sounds like you're hiring. So (laughs) direct resumes to James. James, you've had, I have to say, and I don't mean to make light, you know, you've had this really interesting career trajectory and done a lot of things. When I hear you talk about the Rocky Mount Innocence Project, it seems like that would be the reason people would compare you to Superman, like Uh saving the the innocent from these wrongful convictions. Um, (laughs) That just stood out at me when you were talking about that. Yeah, I wish I were Superman on those cases. They're hard and they take a long time. And there's often, you know, you, you a lot. Uh, there's often a time uh, at which you kind of feel like you're breaking through, getting um, mm. some new insights about the case, or maybe there's a potential piece of new evidence that you might be able to find, and then you're disappointed, and then you keep pressing, and you, you hit another wall. Uh, um, and uh, you know, while I'm not doing any active work on those cases. I am really good friends with um, the staff attorney at the Rocky Mountain Innocence Center, and I keep up on some of the, the cases I worked on and just kind of, um, you know, we, we go to lunch occasionally and and um, I hear of, of all, that's the real hard work, you know? <laughs> like, Absolutely. Like, I, I, yes. I should, I basically am reminded every time I go to the, those um, lunches that, you know, my, my job does not have the same kind of challenges. And so I really respect people that, that, that do it. I feel the same way. Let me change gears for a moment because you've mentioned expert work a few times. You you mentioned that you really like doing that. And earlier on, you, you talked about the, the Paltrow trial really giving you the opportunity to handle different experts. And you said that would be fun within itself. What do you like so much about working with experts, whether it's in your day-to-day doing medical malpractice defense or in this uh, type of different realm when it comes to like a personal injury lawsuit? Yeah, I mean, I I think I, I just, I like learning uh, about the medicine in our, our typical cases. Mm-hmm. My dad's a physician, my brother's a physician. Okay. Um, I joke that they like my job better than I do because then they can, especially my dad, he's the sciencey dad that was always like, you know, look at this boiling water. Why is it happening? You know, um, got it. And, got it. and so he likes, you know, to talk medicine with me about it. And I, I really, really enjoy just learning the, the medicine. It's a, it's, it's a, um, it's just a, a, a continuation of, uh, education that's learning for its own sake. In a certain sense, it feels like that often when you're just mm-hmm. trying to figure out at the start, what, what are the expert opinions? What are the facts here? Um, eventually, obviously it's not just for its own sake. You're, you're trying to figure out, can we use this expert, um, for our case? Um, but it feels a, a lot like the, you know, my, my college life that I really loved so much, just trying to learn things because I'm curious about them. Um, uh, and then I think, you know, a lot of the people that I work with, the, the experts are, are often very interesting, um, genuine, uh, and, and very, I, I think, um, affable people that I, I really enjoy spending time with. And then once you get to trial, you, it's a special kind of bonding mm-hmm. when you're trying to figure out how to present this and, um, you have to have a decent, uh, rapport and, um, 
and I, I like occasionally, you know, I travel to, to meet with experts. And so I get to see different parts of the country. Uh, I think I mentioned to you just before we went on, on the air, your husband had lived in New Orleans for yes. a while. And uh, I just went to New Orleans um, for that reason. Um, so I, I think I get to I get to see a little bit of the country, which is is also interesting. So yeah, I mean, there's there, there's various reasons. I, on this this Paltrow case, it was it was fun to learn about the skiing stuff. I never thought I would be talking to some, uh, you know, ski expert talking about how ski bindings, you know, break off of, of, of a ski with certain amount of force, and then have to figure out how do you how do you present that to a lay person? Mm-hmm. And you're the one in charge of you know figuring out how to present. Obviously, the experts help you, um, but that kind of work is really fulfilling for me it's kind of like the writerly stuff that i'm talking about where you're trying to think about strategy and make it definitely make it it lucid and concise and clear to a non-expert and and in my experience it's such an academic exercise as well i remember one of the last experts i deposed before i left my firm was a statistician and i never took stats in high school i was the person who went to law school to avoid math and all of a sudden you really have to become conversant in this new field and, you know, you start learning enough to be dangerous as well. I, I did matters where I had to learn about how wheels of cars worked and you all of a sudden are speaking like a metallurgist and then you go to get your car fixed. And they're like, well, who is this person? <laughs> and why, why do you know so much? I don't know if you had experience like that, but you, for that moment in time, you yourself have to become an expert. And it is good to be a perfectionist, I guess, is what I'm trying to right. say. Right. Well, and then other danger is you start thinking you actually know the stuff. I always, oh, uh, for I, sure. I also <laughs> often find myself confident and then realizing at the next meeting with the expert, oh yeah, I've totally misunderstood this. So, I mean, I, I joke that I, like, I only know enough about it to know that I like really don't understand. This. Yeah, <laughs> totally dangerous for sure. Um, James, we talked about you being at a small firm. We talked about balance a little bit. I really want to ask you about being a working dad as well. When you and I were emailing about setting up this conversation, you know, you had this perceived delay in a response to me and you were apologetic and you said, oh, my young son, you know, he's been sick and I'm playing catch up, something to that effect. And that absolutely jumped out at me. And I made a note because in my experience, it's not every day that working lawyer dads are kind of volunteering like this, this shuffle and, and the juggle. And you were so free with that information. You, you really didn't know me. And let me say at that time, I did not know until I researched uh, you for today that you had made these statements to Billy Bush, who is an <laughs> entertainment journalist here in the United States. He caught you when the trial was over. You were rushing out of the courthouse. And he said, James, what are you going to do now? And you said, Oh, I'm, you know, just going to see my young son. He just turned one and started walking. So I thought you were just sharing that with with me, someone you didn't know, but you're not hesitant to kind of share this to the world. I would love to hear more about that that balance and kind of how you you uh, handle being a dad to a, to a young son and how important that is to you as a lawyer as well. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it is important. It'd be misleading for me to, you know, pretend like I'm some super dad. Um, there it is, the, not the, Superman, the Clark, the Clark, super dad. Yeah, the, the Clark Kent stuff aside. You know. um, <laughs> but I, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like that um, that balance is definitely, um, or just just that, that presence and attention and the organization that it takes um, to make sure that I'm um, taking the burden off of my wife the best I can and then just making sure I'm there 
for my child um, has taken and is still taking a, a lot of um, work and and learning. I think the you know my wife has been especially helpful for me this way. She knows I'm willing, but that you know being willing isn't the the mm-hmm. only thing. Like you you got to figure out um, what works for you in your particular relationship. What um, uh, un I think sort of unrecognized burdens might be uh, on mm-hmm. on your wife as a as a partner. I'm sure it can go the other way as well. But especially when you know the the mother is the caretaker um, mm-hmm. and has especially early on the all of the the things that come with um, mothering a child, including you know breastfeeding and making sure you know you're you're feeding the kid um, and the ri- sort of the routines that you develop that, that you know I'm at work and I'm not there as much. So just even knowing like when are the when are the nap times or what what um, sure. what are we trying to do here? You know, being on the same page um, so that if you know the for example, my wife went to Hawaii recently with her sister and her friend who's pregnant just to, you know, mm. uh, have that time together. And, um, you know, for the week, it's like, am I really able to just step in and know what I'm doing and not have to text her all the time and, and what's happening? You know, I think that it's, it's really making sure you communicate a, about a bunch of that and be willing to, um, see what you might not have, re- you know, noticed um, that that is a burden, and and then see ways in, in terms of your work schedule that you can you can rearrange things to help that way. Like uh, what's helped, I think, a lot with us is that I um, have stayed home for um, mornings for a while, um, mm. so that I'm sort of there. It's an easy time when um, I can be helpful with breakfast or you know. Change, changing the, the morning diaper we can go on a walk we can spend time together and so I just go in a little later um and we only have the one son and um with more kids I'm sure it's more complicated but there would just be I think another way of, of figuring out when the optimal time would be to um uh, sort of carve out something from my usual work day so that I can be helpful. But again, it's, it's easy to, you know, talk as if I really know what I'm doing. You should really talk to my wife and ask her if I'm doing a good job. <laughs> well, I think just your, your, I'm sure that you are, I'm certain that you are. And I think just your willingness to, to talk about it is really important. Um, you know, when we consider gender norms and gender roles, like I suggested earlier, it's not often you hear the working male figure, the working dad that is just being so free with, you know, hey, my son was sick, I'm catching up on emails, or I'm going to, you know, come in a little late today and adjust my day so I can spend time with my child in the morning. Typically, it's the moms who are doing that. And I will also confess, you know, when I became a mom and was at a firm, I actually went in the opposite direction and tried not to talk about it too much because I didn't want to distinguish and differentiate myself in any way. So I really do admire um, you coming out in front of this. And I think, I think it's important. Well, and if I could say Jennifer on that point that the, you know, it's not just me, it's the firm that makes that more possible. Right. So Steve Owens, who I mentioned is, you know, the president of the firm, lead partner, um, the guy I work mostly with, you know, he has two daughters and I think he has a, you know, mm-hmm. uh, an appreciation for what, um, it means to be a young mom. And so he's, you know, um, sensitive to that, not just with me, but some of the other younger attorneys at the firm and, you know, um, and, and just the, the sacrifices that, that spouses make generally for like, for example, 
trial that sort of takes uh, all sure. of the, the the other spouse's time. Um, he always gives a little gift after trials to the mm. spouse just to acknowledge this. You know, so that's really you, nice. You had to spend a bunch of you. You helped the firm by sort of holding down the fort while we stole your your husband for two weeks. You know, so um, that it definitely helps. You know, the, those those out there that are um, in the you know the sort of lead management roles for them to be sensitive to that stuff is is really super helpful. I mean, they they can make a huge difference if if they can recognize where where they can contribute that way. Oh, I'm so glad you raised that and what an amazing thing that he does. I wish that all the the coverage that you got, you know, New York Post, Vanity Fair, People and all of that, not just the the Superman angle, but also <laughs> really the, the super dad in this conversation. And of course, the benefit to your music, because I think this is such a benefit to the profession. James, before I let you go, I'm really curious to hear like what your future holds. Like, is there anything in particular that you'd love to do as a lawyer that you haven't done yet? Anything you'd, you'd like to do again, if you've kind of thought about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know. I mean, up to even this point, you know, my career hasn't gone how I expected it to go. So I don't, I don't have a great sense of where um, it is going. I think in the definitely in the short term, I'm at my firm. Um, I am, you know, um, I got so many clients that I'm trying to help. And I'm very invested in in that um but i um i think that um lpo uh, um mm-hmm. thing i mentioned earlier is it's not so much the i guess the lpo work uh, as much as just working in or with india somehow um mm. i have you know in the time that i've spent in india i've kind of become an india file and um have a lot of interest in um uh, various things that have to do um, with India and would love to find some way that I could work with or in India somehow um, uh, just because of my um, my love for the country. Um, that could happen, you know, in retirement for all I know. <laughs> I, I, mm. I'm not sure when that would happen, but that that's actually what I thought I would be shooting for when I went to law school. Um, I chose... Um, Brigham Young University, partly because it had a lot of international connections and some to India. That's really the only thing I, uh, uh, you know, uh, can think of now is possible that, you know, innocence work, um, maybe um, doing the pro bono aspect of uh, mm-hmm. the, the typical case where it's in, you know, investigated, like I said, by the, the university student you know, or law students at a university and then um, uh, a staff attorney or the the innocent centers, um, uh, lawyers would, you know, decide, okay, it's ready to, to be, um, taken to the courts. And it would be, I think, interesting to do that part. That would take, uh, some effort in terms of carving out enough, enough time, um, at a small firm. Sometimes that, that is one thing that I think it is more difficult at a small firm because we don't have as many bodies to throw at things, right. you know? Right. Um, but yeah, that'd be another thing. Well, I have to say, I'm so glad that you touched upon why you went to law school and India, because I did want to follow up on both of those. And I completely agree that the pro bono work that that I've done, it's the um, the only 
kind of similar work has been the most rewarding in my career and the work that has meant the most to me. But James, I will tell you, we have listeners in India, so you might oh, end up with, you know, some, <laughs> some job opportunities. Who knows? <laughs> well, that's great. Well, I, I say hi to all my Indian friends out there. James, thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. I know you haven't uh, granted that many interviews or had many conversations. So all of us at Thomson Reuters and the Hearing Illegal Podcast are really, really thankful for you lending your time and your insight with us today. Thank you so much. Well, I really appreciate it. I hope some of what I've said is useful. I'm kind of early in my career and not as uh, auspicious a guest as some of the others you've had on, but... I really appreciate you taking an interest and hopefully uh, I've said some things that might help somebody else. The Hearing. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Hearing. Before you go, please leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. This ensures that you'll be notified when our latest episodes drop. We'd also love to hear from you. Any feedback you have or ideas for future guests, drop us a line at thehearing at tr.com. That's thehearing at tr.com. Until next time. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.